Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is sponsored by the Four Bush Botanical Garden in downtown Little Rock, where everything we care about is incurably green. And welcome back, everybody, to Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy with your host, Ben Siders. That's me. The other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk. Isn't the caption of the Enterprise? We want to give a special shout-out to all of our new listeners, uh, Kirk. We've been experimenting with uh, Facebook campaigns, and about a month ago, we did a campaign that uh, sort of targeted geeks broadly in our region, and we got pretty good reach. You know, for a couple bucks, you hit a couple thousand people, and a pretty typical engagement rate of about 1% to 2%. Um, but then we did a more targeted campaign uh, that reached less than 100 people, but we got a ridiculous engagement rate <laughs> yeah, of 30%. And uh, even more crazy, the second group of people was from all over the place. We got hits from Missouri, which we expected, but also China, Japan, uh, France, Mississippi, Montana, Russia, South Korea, Oklahoma, Haiti, Texas, Mexico City, California, Burma, <laughs> and Florida. Yeah. Quite the quite the spectrum. Definitely cool. I mean, it was it was cool seeing sort of all the uh, like you know uh, symbolic letter language names popping up and everything like that as new listeners. So. Yeah, we wanted to say thank you to people, but uh, we got you know Asian scripts where neither Kirk nor I had any idea how to pronounce the name or, or even how to type in. <laughs> exactly. So well, we'd like to say thank you for definitely joining in and keep listening. It's cool to see you guys there. Yeah, we also got a request. Uh, Kirk Kirk saw the Black Panther movie finally, and someone yes, asked did. us if we could give our thoughts on the film. I thought we'd do that at the end of the podcast to avoid any spoilers. For those of you who haven't seen it, so after we go through mail at the end, we'll give our our two our two minute review of Black Panther. I think the only the only spoiler I give ahead of time in conjunction with it is if you haven't seen it, go see it. Yeah, go see it. If you haven't seen it, go see it. So today, and actually next time too, we're going to continue the conversation we were having about character copyright and fan fiction. And I think in today's episode, we're going to get into a little bit more detail on uh, on the Disney company's influence on our copyright laws. And <laughs> while looking into this, we actually learned it, it's not really just Disney. It's not even primarily Disney. It's Yeah, I think everybody blames Disney with it. They're an easy target. With They're Mouse. big. Yeah. They're still around. It also very clearly does align with Mickey Mouse. It does. It does. But, I, think it, I think it's fair to say that, that once Disney comes to the table and says this needs to change, that's when Congress suddenly finds the motivation to do it. Yeah. But it, it's certainly not just them, and we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, and, and you know, it's, it's no mystery why it's Disney. There's, there's I'd argue there's probably no, no um, I don't know, content producer that's had a more profound influence on um, on our uh, as much cultural impact yeah. as Disney. Well, had. effectively, I think you can't deny that effectively Disney created animation, at yeah. least in the form we know it today. I mean, yes, they didn't necessarily create the whole concept of it and stuff like that. But when we think of animation today, we think of stuff that was created by Walt Disney. Yeah. Um, so last time we talked about what character copyright is, uh, just briefly in case you've forgotten, it's a recognition that the characters themselves uh, can be conceived of as an expression of an underlying idea, and thus a given character may be copyrighted even if the underlying archetype is not. And the example we used of that was the mad scientist. Yep. So you can express this concept of a mad scientist. It's a powerful narrative element because science is – actually, just before we started talking, Kirk and I were sort of discussing how – why is it in, uh, in, in comics and, and in a lot of uh, uh, superhero uh, genres, the, the hero is always a, a muscle-bound you know, fool, a lovable but, but muscle-bound fool. Yes. But then the villain is always an evil genius. Yeah, and, and somehow the evil genius always loses to the muscle-bound fool even though he's an evil genius. Yeah, so this, this, this mad scientist idea of, of uh, you know, science being the pinnacle of human intellect achievement and yet being still perverted to the same twisted ends as anything else can be has a lot of narrative power. Yeah. And I think it's something you commonly see in connection with the superhero narratives. A lot of times, I think it, in many respects, it falls to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I mean, we're dropping way back, 
you know, yeah. all the way back to, you know, a long time ago in conjunction with where that archetype arguably came from. But I think a lot of the, the reason it's such a good archetype is because what you get is you get the ability to sort of lose control. Yeah. And I think that's, it, when we're joking about it as sort of what is it, what you really see, I think, a lot of times in the mad scientist is loss of control. The idea yeah. that, you know, hey, I've created this thing, it's gone berserk. I mean, Godzilla, monster movies are the same thing, you know. <laughs> there may be a comment embedded there on sort of the fine line between genius and insanity, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, I think there's that. I think also, quite frankly, there's just, you know, when a lot of these things are created, a lot of sort of golden age of comics, stuff like that, we're talking about eras where science was scary. I mean, we're talking about the creation of the nuclear age. You that's know, true. science was scary um, at that point in time. It still we didn't is know to a lot doing. of people. I mean, when they were starting up some of those uh, particle accelerators, there were like legitimate articles in legitimate publications asking, are we going to open little black holes that swallow the planet? Yeah. <laughs> and people and it, meant that seriously. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a serious discussion of it. I think most people who understood the physics said no. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. I think there is a lot of concern that science and it's sort of science kind of go a little bit along with mysticism of the idea of, hey, if I don't understand it, it's scary. It's I mean, I scary, joke about yeah. it. People who look at computers as black boxes, you know, it's this little magic machine that does things. Ultimately, it's a machine. I had to just tear my machine apart this weekend because <laughs> of the fact that iTunes decided it did not wish to cooperate at all, and oh I had to find a way to rip it off of the machine, which I did finally do. But it's one of those where I was doing it, and it really did sort of harken home to the, this is just a machine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I can make it do what I want it to do. Well, so this mad scientist is, is the archetype that would be the idea in the idea-expression divide, and an example of the expression of that idea would be Dr. Octopus, Dr. Frankenstein, uh, Dr. Doom, or uh, Dr. Moreau, to go way back. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of ways you can kind of— Dr. Jekyll. <laughs> uh, Dr. Jekyll, yeah. There's a lot of ways you can express this given idea. And so those characters are protected separate and apart from any story you might tell about them. So if I go make my own Dr. Octopus uh, comic book, I'm still infringing a copyright. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's—I'm uh, going to pick on the archetype as well. I'm actually going to pick on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because let's face it, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and the Hulk are the same person. Mm-hmm. I Basically, mean, Bruce Banner yeah. and the Hulk are exactly the same person. Again, idea, idea expression, that, different, yeah. different ideas, uh, the same idea, different expressions of the character yep. type. And I think no people would deny that those are different characters, those are different expressions, but they're clearly the same archetype. And this, this whole character copyright concept is a little tricky uh, because it means that even if your expression of the idea of a character is unique and independent, it's still possible to infringe somebody else's copyright if it's too close to somebody else's character, which we talked about is sort of a trademark type issue, not really a copyright issue. Yeah. And I think that is where we start getting into some of these difficult issues with it is we're starting to look now, and as we went over in the last episode, and I think we're just going to follow up a little bit here as well, is the problem of character copyright is that you really start to blur trademark and copyright together. And we're seeing courts finding copyright infringements on sort of trademark concepts. Yeah. Um, we're seeing that, that, that real sort of concern of exactly what this means. Now, there's a good reason for it because in many respects, these characters are valuable. Trademark is designed to connect commercial rights in some respects. I mean, as we talked about, it's really designed to protect the consumer. But it's one of those things where I think you've got some very interesting overlap some real problems that have risen out of this. What becomes very interesting, though, is the fact that copyright and trademark are such different laws. And meant to protect different interests, too, yeah. and promote different interests. Copyright's about promoting the creation of more cool stuff. Trademark is consumer protection, yeah. in theory. And that's sort of, I think, the thing with it. The other thing we start looking about is, you know, stuff like, you know, term of protection. Trademarks have to be renewed. They have to be renewed every 10 years. But they can last forever. They can last forever. As long forever. as you take care of them. Yeah, as long as you take care of them. So, so long as you continue to use it commercially. But it's one of those things that as soon as you give it up, it's gone. Well, and trademarks also have uh, an interesting aspect in that a lot of these characters we, we, we think about 
are covered by both copyright and trademark to some extent. I mean, Mickey Mouse is used as a trademark, as a designation yeah, of origin. When you see Mickey, you assume that whatever he's on is either from the Disney company or or made with their approval. Yeah, I mean, definitely, and particularly, you just even take the mouse ears, the basic sort of concept of the, the three half circles. I mean, yeah, you think about it, a very a very basic trademark, but you see that, you know exactly what it is. Yes, yeah. um, and so yeah, there's there definitely is overlap between character copyright. There is overlap between you know sort of um, you know characters being trademarks, being copyrightable individuals, and the laws just seem to have real trouble with it. And I think that's the thing is it's it's hard to distinguish them because they are such completely separate laws. The whole goal of copyright, the whole goal of trademark, the whole way copyrights are enforced and the whole law for enforcing it, the whole way trademarks are enforced and the law for enforcing it are almost dead opposite. The measure but, of damages, yeah. you know, how you prove your case. And what we see now is in trademark cases, they're talking about copyright principles and in copyright cases, they're talking about trademark principles. Yeah, and you, <laughs> we're definitely seeing that more and more. And I think that that's, you know, it's it's becoming concerning where you sort of got uh, the, the concern that I see, and again, this is spoken as a patent lawyer. Um, I think one of the things that you definitely I see becoming the concern with it is we're starting to see the idea of commercial interest sneaking into copyright. Mm-hmm. And really, in many respects, copyright is supposed to be the anti-commercial interest. You know, if you go all the way back to what the purpose of copyright was, yes, it was to protect commercial interest. But, you know, you go to the Berne Convention, you go to some of these sort of more recent copyrights, and the whole idea is protect the independent artist. And yet what we're starting to see is a bit of follow the money. Well, if you, so let's go back to where this all comes from. So copyright, as you mentioned before, limited in time. But the, the amount of time you get a copyright for has changed a lot over the a years. Lot. And our, con- contrary to, I think, some popular perception, these IP rights are very, very old. It's among the first couple of things the first Congress did yep. after the Constitution was ratified is enact the Copyright Act and enact the Patent Act. Yep. And on top of that, both of those things are in the Constitution. But the, it's a little weird because if you look at the Constitution, most of the powers of Congress just say what Congress can do. Congress will have the power to raise an army or to raise a navy. Well, the copyright power is weird. Congress shall have the power to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. That's the power, to yep. promote the progress of science and the useful arts. And we should say useful arts is a... Victorian era term that basically means technology. It's yeah. meant to be. It was at the time, and uh, it meant the opposite of the fine arts or the performing arts. Uh, so, uh, but it's sort of fallen out of favor. Although you still see it used like state of the art is sort of yeah. a callback to to that term. So, yeah, the, or the, even bachelor of arts. Which yeah, bachelor of arts relates to sciences. So, you know, the power is to promote the progress of science and technology, but the copyright and, and patent clause also says how. Congress is supposed to do it. They grant to authors for copyrights and inventors for patents the limited exclusive rights to their writings and inventions. Yep. So if you think about it, the, the copyright power is meant to promote the progress of science. Yeah. And and the useful arts, which is meant to be the opposite of the fine arts, so really nothing in that clause originally had anything to do with creative works. Yeah, and that's I think it's it's interesting when you sort of you again get back to that is what were we talking about? The other thing you got to remember when the Constitution was written, written works meant quite literally written works. And yeah, that's you, all there was. <laughs> yeah, there's no sound recordings at this point in time. There's no movies. You know, there's no television, anything like that. I mean, written works meant written works. It meant physically writing it with a pen and paper. And then and the Copyright Act, the original Act from the 1790s, uh, lasted 14 years. Yep. If you were still alive, when it, when your first 14 years <laughs> expired, you could apply for 14 more, but it didn't cover much. It covered maps and charts, both of which are arguably no longer copyrightable under, yep. under some circumstances, and, and scientific journals and publications, and that was about it. And a lot of that stuff, interestingly enough, is also where we, we've talked about things in like the, you know, um, the work for hire statute previously. Interestingly enough, a lot of the things you see in the work for hire statute is some of that original stuff associated with what you have from, you know, protected by copyright. Um, you know, they talk about atlases and sort of, you know, I mean, in many respects, an atlas being a, a you know, 
a combination of maps, mm-hmm. you kind of can see a little bit of where maybe those specific categories came from was the association of this is what these things are. So it, it seems clear that I think originally as written, the patent and copyright acts were not – I mean I wouldn't say they weren't intended to cover those things, but as they were written, they didn't clearly cover the fine arts or, or creative works. Yep. Nevertheless – Now, there was some copyright state rules. Yeah, there was a lot mind. of state copyright at the time, and that all pretty much went away in the 1970s. Yeah, now some of them do still around, and yeah. most of it's where you expect it, uh, New York being one of the most important ones yep. just because New York being you know, essentially one of the existing colonies before the Constitution existed. Yep. Um, New, York, New York was also Hollywood before Hollywood. It was Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. it, was, it was the performing arts center of the world. And so I think you've got, you know, the, the, there's elements of the fact that there was copyright related to fine arts, but not necessarily with the constitutional copyright. Yeah, and, and as, even as it is, there are certain things that are not covered by the Federal Copyright Act that some states will will cover. Um, but those are pretty unusual. They don't come up that much anymore. Yep. So this, this raises an interesting question. When exactly does a character copyright begin then? And we talked about this last time where, you know, we're going to talk about Disney specifically. You know, what do you do when a character's personality isn't established all that well or at all even uh, on the original publication? So Mickey Mouse debuts in Steamboat Willie and I think – I wrote it down here somewhere – 1923? No, 19, 1928. 1928. 1928, the Steamboat Willie. Um, but if you look – just go Google like, like Mickey Mouse over time and you'll see that he didn't really look the way he looks now until basically Fantasia in 1940. Yeah. Yeah, and that's – I think we touched about this a little bit in our last episode, and it is one of the big problems. We the, One of the requirements of the constitutional thing for copyright and patents, the constitutional statements, is that there be for a limited term. Trademarks don't have to be for a limited term. As we talked about, they can last forever. What we're now bumping into in conjunction with it is when exactly does Mickey Mouse's copyright run because who exactly is Mickey Mouse? And we talked about this. I talked about it with the M&Ms and and Mm -hmm. sort of the same kind of things. Most characters undergo some form of evolution, particularly as sort of additional content is created for them. Now, you look at it and you say, hey, I've got one book that was written, you know, Mm -hmm. and and has never sort of had a sequel or never had anything else written about it. Okay, you've got a definitive point in time. But, you know, in the age of the sequel, in the age of the movie rights and things like that, which has been around for quite a long period of time, as much people it's not very popular, the, the TV uh, binge-watching serials, you know, yeah. where you have 12 episodes released at once. And, or how about this, The Simpsons, something really simple that's in syndication now. 30 years of this show. And if you yeah. go back and watch first season Simpsons, the characters are virtually unrecognizable. Like, their, their role in the show hasn't changed, but their personalities have changed a lot. Yeah, and that's part of that's just as people get them. I mean, you talk to a lot of authors, and authors always talk about how the characters write their own stories. Yeah. You know, because they start to develop who the character is, and then the story just flows naturally from who it is. But yeah, I think you bump into that. Is when does when did Maggie Simpson become Maggie Simpson? Yeah, when do they decide she's never going to actually talk and it's just going to be like a running joke? Yeah, you know, you know and things like that. The the one that I think is sort of a great example of actually that is it's when did Lost become Lost? Yeah, <laughs> yeah for anybody who watched Lost, because it's the first season of Lost and the fifth season of Lost almost have nothing to do with each other. Yeah. You know, they're almost separate shows. And um, you see deliberate choices made with characters. I'm a big fan of The Office and Parks and Rec. If you've seen that show, Michael Scott, Steve Carell's character in season one, is a completely different character from the rest of the show. He starts out being this brash, rude, uh, cruel jerk that plays really mean, practical jokes on people. He's extremely unlikable. He's got this greasy hair. Um, some parts of his personality remain. Like, he thinks he's funny, but he's not. But he turns from cruel jerk into sort of uh, a frustratingly lovable buffoon. Yeah, uh, or, or an Amy Poehler's character in Parks and Rec, 
turns into the opposite in some respects. In the first season, she, she's this sort of pathetic underachiever, but then they kind of retool her character to become the opposite, like a really high-energy overachiever to where it becomes a running joke that her character can do you know, a month's worth of work by herself overnight and, yeah. and operate on no sleep. Yeah, and I think that you've got some interesting things sort of in, in that type of thing. Fortunately, those occur quickly. They at least occur in like one yeah, season the course so we of can year. look at it and say, you know, hey, we, you know, for the purposes of when does it start, well, maybe it starts a year later than when it started. Yeah, which nobody's going to probably complain about yeah. that much. But, but when you get these long-running serials and a lot of these sort of things, you know, when does the character really come into attach, especially when you start changing mediums? I mean, the example, like, I'd pick on is Harry Potter. Yeah. You know, I mean, the original Harry the first Potter one book, published? 90s? But, and, yeah, I want to say the 90s. Yeah. But, I mean, when the book was first published, it was a commercial disaster. Nobody bought it. Um, it wasn't until she changed the title and re-released it that the, the books became a hit. Then you sort of have the creation of the characters via the movies. And I think, in many respects, a lot of fans association with what the character is is based upon the portrayals in the movies, mm-hmm. which arguably is a different character than if you were to just read it. If we really get sort of into what is the character, let's talk about Game of Thrones. Yeah. Where we have potentially two completely different characterizations of the same character. We don't know what's going to happen in the books, but we're approaching the end of the te- television series. Presumably the same things are going to happen, but we don't know if the personalities are going to stay the same. We really don't know. So, And would the copyright expire at a different time? Now, Game of Thrones maybe is not as big of a deal because both the books and show are being put on at the same time. Yep. But what do you do with something like The Wizard of Oz, where the book was published in 1900, the movie's not made for 35 years? Yep. And that's I think that's the really common thing. We have a lot of that starting to happen. I mean, again, let's talk superhero movies. Um, you know, when you start talking about superheroes, a lot of Superman. these superheroes, yeah, Superman existed, you know, 30s and 40s, yeah, somewhere in there, World War II era. Early Sarah Terra. And then you have Christopher Reeves' movie in 79, 70, somewhere yeah, in late, se- late 70s, late I think. Late 70s, I want to say. Um, or, you know, to get into sort of really changing characters, Captain America. Yeah. Um, you know, Captain America was World War II. I mean, that's really what he was. He was a creation of World War II. Um, and we now have him being in a modern age. I mean, there's no question that the modern Captain America movies are set in today's day and age. What is Captain America? When did this character start? You know, is he a World War II defender? I mean, you've got a lot of characters like that. I mean, the Punisher, in some respects, mm-hmm. is, is like that. Watchmen. Um, oh, yeah. You know, when you want to talk about it, I mean, Watchmen basically, you know, is a, is a comment from sort of, you know, the early 80s that was made in a movie in the 2000s. How about Forrest Gump? I mean, the author of the Forrest Gump book hated the movie because it sanitized all of the violence and sexuality that was part of the character in the book. Yeah. Because wanted to make it a more fra- family-friendly, you know, uh, nostalgia film. And they pulled it off brilliantly, but the author hated it yeah. for that reason. So, yeah, I think the interesting thing you really get into in conjunction with this is exactly when do these character copyrights start? It's a very difficult question because in some respects we can't define the character. And this is where when when you're talking about the idea of copyright, remember we can't copyright the general archetype. Mm -hmm. So we can't say we're copywriting the mad scientist. We have to copyright Dr. Doom. Well, to that point, we talked about this last time. What is Mickey Mouse's character? Yeah. Uh, could you give me one defining characteristics of him other than what he looks like? Yeah, you'd say in some sense he's sort of the the, the bumbling goofball that everything turns out right for. Yeah. But that's Fantasia. <laughs> I mean, that's not Steamboat Willie. Yeah, sort of the respects. accidental hero, you know? Like, yeah. like, you know, just sort of things happen just through sheer luck. But then you get into, I think, like, you know, my kids watch, you know, the the standard, you know, Disney Junior, you know, stuff mm-hmm. right now. And I mean, Mickey Mouse has Mickey Mouse Clubhouse on Disney Junior right now. And in that, that's not his character. I mean, his character is actually a very intelligent. Yeah. I mean, you know, sort of... Problem solver. 
Um, well, so Steamboat Willie, at least, the copyright on that expires as of now in 2023 uh, because under current copyright law, uh, copyrights last for 70, 70 years? 70 After years the life of the, author, the author or 95 years for corporate authors. Um, and, but this wasn't always the case. In the 1976 Copyright Act, I believe it was 56 years, something like that? Well, the original copyright is still 14 years. Yeah. I think that we need to jump back to that. It's been extended, I want to say, three or four times. Well, Mickey Mouse was created under the 1909 Act, yep. which was a lot shorter of a copyright. And then when it was about to expire, coming up in the 1970s, they rewrote the Copyright Act and made it 40 or 50 or something years. Yep. And then when it was about to expire again in the 90s, they renewed it again in 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 what everybody hates the most, the Sonny Bono Act, yep. which was so named because Sonny Bono, who was very much beloved, um, had recently died. And so they named this act after him to uh, you know to be a little cynical, to disguise the fact that it was a corporate giveaway to a bunch of copyright yep. holders who were lobbying hard for it. It was to protect his estate. I mean, one yeah. thing was to keep his works as well under copyright to protect his estate. I mean, there was some argument for that. Interestingly, I, I actually researched this when I did my law school paper. The vote on the Sonny Bono Act in Congress was taken by voice vote, which means there's no written record of who voted for it and who voted against it, which is – to me, sort of a it's kind of interesting, sort of an indication yeah. that nobody wanted to have their name attached to this law because it was such a transparent exercise of power for this purpose. But Disney, I think, unfairly takes all the blame for this. It, it wasn't just them, though. I think to understand the context for this, what they did, they so when they when they passed the Sonny Bono Act, they extended copyright for another 19 years. At the time, works from 1922 were about to expire and enter the public domain. So once they passed the Sonny Bono Act, it, it gave a reprieve to everything published between basically 1922 and the early 40s. Yep. And this is not a coincidence. Uh, we were talking about this uh, this morning, too, before we started recording. If you think about it, the, the works that were produced in America in that time period were some of the most culturally impactful works, yeah. uh, things that kids read today. We, I described we're it as— We're talking about the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, I, I described it as, as the bricks that form the foundation of, of modern Americana. And, and that may seem like an exaggeration, but let's think about it. you got Mickey Mouse, yeah. which, you know, there's no question. Mickey Mouse is, is a pervasive cultural icon in the United States. Yeah. And, and basically the invention of animation— as an art. And in some sense, the motion picture as well. Yeah. I mean, we have really the, the Hollywood movie industry starting to come into its own. We also made a list of some other things. Uh, so this morning, we had a, a friend of ours, Mike, stop by to, to talk to us this morning, and we were kind of explaining the podcast today, and I told him, can you name three books published in the 1910s? And he couldn't. Yeah, I mean, those kidding. of you who are book nerds probably could, but I couldn't. Yeah. Uh, I looked some up and recognized some names, but most of what I saw, I didn't recognize. How about the 1920s? Well, yeah, you've got Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, James Joyce, Sinclair Lewis, uh, William Faulkner, T.S. Eliot, Agatha Christie, Langston Hughes, Virginia Woolf. You've got the Harlem Renaissance. There are so many writers that came into their own in the 1920s yeah. and American so much that writers. was published. And let's, American let's specific, writers. These are American writers. Yeah, there's, well, James Joyce is, is well, Irish, but, but, but <laughs> still. Uh, the, the, the point is you've got you know uh, a lot of these important uh, works. Uh, Steinbeck yeah. uh, is another one. Uh, Gone with the Wind. Margaret Mitchell uh, was was in this time period. The Wizard of Oz movie was made in this time period, and it's not just uh, film and and uh, I guess television is probably premature, but music and plays as well. We, yep. we were talking about Rodgers and Hammerstein, yep. and uh, and Gershwin, Rhapsody in Blue. Well, so. I think you've also got you know when you start thinking the twenties, you're starting to think like really American music also starting to come into play. It's mass media, right? The invention yeah. of the broadcast medium and the ability to reach a wider audience yeah. beyond just who can show up and see a performance. But also a lot of American styles, I think you could also say are potentially coming into play jazz. in the 20s. Jazz, blues, ragtime. You know, now, I mean, people who are seriously into music are going to dispute exactly when these yeah, things Yeah, I mean, the origins play, of but... these things can be laid elsewhere, but we're talking about when it became popularized and commercialized and really brought into the American cultural conscience. Yep. 
So, yeah, yep. yeah so, so you have defining works come from this era and things that, you know, we make our children watch because if you haven't seen it, you can't understand America, <laughs> you know, are, are all in this time period. So without the Sonny Bono Act, all of this stuff would have been in the public domain 20 years ago. Yep. It, would, it would all be out there right now. So these extensions kind of make sense economically when you think about, you know, from the perspective of the rights holders. Uh, but this this comes at, at a cost. And I got a quote here from a Duke Law professor whose name I, I forgot to write down, but I found him on Twitter. He says, we are, quote, the first generation to deny our own culture to ourselves, end quote, because, quote, no work created during your lifetime will, without conscious action by its creator, become available for you to build upon, end quote. What do you think of that, Kurt? I think that's a really interesting statement. I think you can take some issues with a few things in it because obviously we can build upon it. Yes. You know, we, we can, can treat we can, it as an do. archetype. But the I think his real statement, I think it's a very important statement, is there is nothing created that we can recall being created, which we are allowed to copy. Yeah. Um, He's saying nobody else during our lifetimes, nobody's going to tell a Star Wars story without Disney's permission. Yeah. Um, and that's a sort of important thing to keep in mind. We can tell, you know, the sequel to Hamlet. Yeah. You know, that's long gone uh, from copyright, you know, those types of things. Never was copyrighted. <laughs> Never was copyrighted, arguably, yes. Um, but the, the things that I think you, you really get into, and I think that quote really sort of hits home upon it, is this does come at a cost. We have granted these artists this right to protect their stuff, but it comes at a cost. And that cost is something where we've really we're starting to i think see some concerns in mm-hmm. conjunction with the copyright law where is the copyright law going of what does this mean when we say we can't build upon it what does it mean i mentioned music and i'm just going to talk about it we talked about this a little bit ahead of time in conjunction with it uh, for those of you who are aware of the blurred lines verdict um, oh, yeah. was just upheld by the appeals court back in march 21st um, that's what we're talking about because one of the th- right here because when we talked about the idea of musical styles there's an argument that the Blur's Line verdict basically says that Marvin Gaye copyrighted a style mm-hmm. and which sounds like at, a trademark issue which sounds like a trademark <laughs> issue but you know we get into those types of, of questions where we're now saying if we're going to allow people to copyright styles we're going to allow people to not build upon it to basically say hey this thing existed um, and what you've done is a copyright infringement because you were influenced by it you know there's a lot of people talking about that this this appeal verdict is devastating I think to be quite truthful the appeal is not that important I mean what the appeal court was finding and anybody who knows anything about law they're just reviewing issues of law yeah, not they're fact. reviewing specific issues what you're really talking about is whether or not the, the district court opinion is, is problematic but the, the things you get into with this is now we're looking at it and saying, are artists in the point where it's, hey, we've granted so many rights to somebody for creating something original that we've literally killed off originality? And wait a minute, isn't the point to promote the progress of these things? Isn't that the yeah. point of the Constitution? And you have to argue, so with the Sonny Bono Act, they add 19 years of extension on. Is there anybody who was who was not going to create something that says, oh, well, I guess if it's going to last for another 20 years after I die, now I care enough to sit down and write? Yeah. A pretty dubious proposition. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Is it's the, the problem you get into when you're talking about 100 years, you're talking about lives of corporations. Yeah. You're really not talking about people's lives anymore. We said last time, follow the money, and that's the thing. As these the, the amount of money, as, as your ability... Ability to sell grows as the size of markets grows. The value of a copyright increases massively. Yep. So if you compare, you know, what was Shakespeare's audience for his works? Uh, unquestionably, in my opinion, the greatest English language publisher, writer, author ever. Right. Yeah. Well, I think most people there's yeah. some disagreement, but I don't think you can deny he's definitely one of the top five. Yeah. How much money did he make? Yeah. Not, not that much. Who, 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 first of all, who, he couldn't publish anything. We didn't have printing presses. Well, we yep. kind of did, but um, his main audience was people going to plays. 
and 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 his work was considered lowbrow at the time. Yeah, now it sold well. Yeah, it I sold mean, well. It was, popular it was, it was mass market schlock for, yeah. for his day. I mean, he was he was the Dragonlance writer of his day. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, but what was his market? Relatively small. How much money could he make? Not that much compared to J.K. Rowling. What's her market? It's the entire world. Yeah, it has a lot more people in it now, and it's cheaper to make her stuff. It's cheaper yeah. to distribute I mean, it. His argument, arguably, his you know market was Stratford on Avon, and maybe a little bit larger. Yeah, could he sell into France? Maybe. Could he sell into Russia? No. No. Japan? No. Yeah. <laughs> the New World? No. You know. Yeah. What about? J.K. Rowling, where can she not sell? Nowhere. You can read her stuff on the space station if you want. Yeah, and I think people have. Probably have, yeah. So, you know, but on the, on the flip side, you know, the artists who are arguing for this, and this is not just Disney. This was uh, uh, Hammerstein's estate, uh, the Gershwin estate. They all lobbied hard for this extension too. And they correctly pointed out that the U.S. was actually kind of unusual. We had an unusually short copyright duration compared to the rest of the world and, and most notably to Europe. And under European law at the time, the, du- the duration that the e- EU would recognize a U.S. copyright in the EU was based on U.S. law. So in the EU, their people got longer copyrights than ours, and our copyrights were shortened in Europe because our law was behind. Yep. And so our creative artists and, and people like that all said, we need to catch up and harmonize our law with theirs, because right now we're at a competitive disadvantage. Yeah, and that's there's there's a lot of interesting stuff, I think, in harmonization and the idea of how do you deal with these things across countries. Um, because you really do bump into this fact of, you know, when you start getting to a global market. When originally we didn't have a global market, it wasn't an issue. We talked about Shakespeare not having a global market. When we get into a global market, you have this issue of what happens when it's different in one country than another. Um, We've seen this modern day. I mean, anybody who remembers it when MP3s first came out, Russia has different Mm -hmm. copyright protections from music the United States did. And so effectively, Russia argued that digital downloads were equivalent to importing individual copies for personal use. It was subject to customs laws. There was some grounds to that, the idea that copyright was different. So basically, you could obtain work in Russia and bring it to the United States that you couldn't obtain in the United States. That's an important point because IP rights are all territorial. They're all based on the government that grants them and recognizes them. So if you get a copyright in the U.S., you know, you only have a copyright in Canada as well if Canadian law will recognize your U.S. copyright. Well, there's no obligation outside of treaties for any given country to do that. So when, you know, when you have these small nations that are not part of these treaties or new nations are formed that that aren't signed up to them, your copyrights are basically no good there. It's a free-for-all. Yeah. Um, And so I think the other thing you you also bump into, and I think to, to keep in mind when we're talking about these in many respects, while we look at it and say the harmonization is necessary to do this, and I'll just tell you just generally, me sort of politically, I'm not a big fan of harmonization, particularly with IP laws and using that as a justification for IP laws. But one of the, the things I think is very interesting is if you go back before the United States had this, in sort of early United States, the United States didn't recognize European copyright. Which um, was a big deal because people kept ripping off all of Charles Dickens' works. Yes, in and, the United which States. Which made very mad. And, and you could actually make false copies of it. And actually, I remember I read a book a, a little while ago. Um, it's called Copyright and Copy Wrong, which is actually a great book if anybody wants to read it. Um, one of the things it talks about is that Mark Twain's original job, um, you know, before he became Mark Twain, and part of how he learned to write was copying British copyrights, mm-hmm. the copyrighted works, um, and European copyrighted works. That's how he learned to write. Um, so you kind of look at it and say, hey, you know, one of America's greatest authors learned to write by being a copyright infringer. Um, there's a lot of argument that the reason, if you take a look at the very first motion picture made, it filmed a play. That's a copyright infringement, unquestionably. Yeah, yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> well, and, and on top of that, uh, believe it or not, the U.S. isn't even the longest-lived copyright in the world. Yeah. I think that honor belongs to Mexico, yeah, which, <laughs> which if you understand Mexico's history, it, it sort of makes sense. Mexico, before NAFTA, had a very, very robust film industry of its own, yep. and a lot of their, their best, most talented people have now come to the U.S 
West, you know, Guillermo del Toro, I can't pronounce his name right. Uh, you know, a lot of those kind of uh, creative minds are now in Hollywood and doing work here. But yeah. the, the Mexican uh, film industry also lobbied hard there. And I think theirs last 120, 140 years. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, I don't know exactly how long it is. I know it is long. Also interesting, a uh, side note I, I discovered while looking into this, the main opponent to the Sonny Bono Act was the hospitality industry uh-huh. because they were tired of paying exorbitant licensing fees for music. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, which, which is interesting, actually, because it is. I mean, you know, you got a lot of these things where it's sort of, you know, there's copyright licenses that fall into play in a lot of places. And people don't realize it. I mean, when you're listening to Muzak in an elevator, there's a copyright license. Public performance there. license. That's different from, you can't just buy a CD and play it in your elevator or yeah. your restaurant. It's a public performance. You need a different set of rights than what you get with a CD. Yeah, because that's for private performance. I mean, we've all seen those disclaimers. I mean, anybody who watched sports last weekend has all seen disclaimers. This is, a, you know, it's a presentation of insert, you know, organization, yep. you know, license for private performance. You know, that's the thing sort of you bump into with it. Well, that also became a, it's not to sidetrack us too much, but there was a an issue for a while with Super Bowl parties, where at what point yeah. is a Super Bowl party big enough with an open invite and a big TV to where it's effectively a public performance, not a private, you know, uh, viewing. And so you actually need public performance rights, which are much more expensive. Yeah, and that's there's some a lot of weird questions that revolve around that kind of stuff. And I think, again, one of the things that I think for me looking at this, and and an important thing I think you you bump into this is we've created a beast when it comes Definitely. to copyright. And there's a lot of argument that this beast is necessary. There's a lot of argument that this beast is a good thing. There's also a lot of argument that this beast is a bad thing. But one of the things I think to really keep in mind is it is a beast. This is something which is hard to understand. This is something which is difficult for the average person to be able to, you know, comprehend, much less abide by. There's a lot of moving parts in this, and, and a lot of our copyright policies and laws have historical antecedents that, that you know, we've, we've scratched the most basic surface in. We've been going 30 minutes now. We've barely covered the simplest elements of, of just the Sonny Bono Act and the politics and the, the commercial influences behind that. But I, you know, the, the point is that these, these long copyrights, although they serve commercial interests that, that employ people and that make uh, businesses run, uh, they have consequences. Um, they, they do inhibit us from using, say, Mickey Mouse to make something new. I personally am a little skeptical about how damaging that is. You know, uh, you know, to, to me, what's more creative, a wholly new original work or just making a new work with somebody else's character? I'd rather see something yeah. original. What do we see now? We see in Hollywood just endless churning out of sequel after sequel after sequel. Everybody complains about it. Well, that's all based on on these copyright interests. And nothing stops somebody who wants to be creative and do something new and different from doing that. The problem is not so much to me the copyright. It's that finding an audience for new original works is a lot harder than it was before. But then you kind of bump into the the extent we say, hey, this is audience. This is recognition of it being the same thing. That's trademark. And we're back to where we started again of, you know, why do we have copyright in this space? You know, if the idea is, hey, we don't want other people making Mickey Mouse movies, can't we cover that effectively with trademark? Which I think is what's going to happen, right? Because Mickey Mouse is undoubtedly a trademark. Just because, you know, Steamboat Willie's copyright expires, let's, let's play that out. Does that mean that that the Mickey Mouse copyright expires? Even if it does, and we'll talk about this more in our next episode, even if it does, there's still a trademark interest in Mickey Mouse. It's not like just because the copyright's gone that now anybody can go out and make a Mickey Mouse plush toy. Yep. And that's where I think you bump into it is what is Mickey Mouse in Steamboat Willie? And that's kind of where we started this, you know, as to when do we say when a when does a copyright start, a character copyright start? We also have then the question of what exactly is a character copyright in? Mm-hmm. And I think we can look at it and say, if Steamboat Willie's copyright runs, and eventually it must run. Yeah. I mean, there, it, it has, has to be for end. a limited time. That's the definition of the Constitution. It must and I don't run think eventually. it's going to get extended again. There's been no rumblings about that. I just, I can't see it happening. Yeah, I think it, Disney's got a contingency plan in place that's probably going to work. Uh-huh. 
Okay. Which is if you've seen, you know, if you watch Disney movies in the '90s, what happened when the movie started? You saw the Cinderella Castle and the, yep. the music, and and now you see an eight-second clip of Steamboat Willie because yep. they're trying to get a copy or a trademark interest, which will last forever yep. in in the movie. Well, at least in that portion of the movie. At least that portion of the movie. And, and I think that the thing that you really get into is assuming that it does run. The one thing you presumably can do is there is no copyright in Steamboat Willie itself anymore. Right. In the actual movie as we see it. So other people can, you know. Put a, put a DVD of it out. Make yeah. a copy and distribute it. Yeah, potentially. Now, again, you bump into the potential trademark interest. Yeah, they'll say you'll be confused like about where it came from. Um, you, can, you can deal with that by just putting on the box, not from <laughs> the Disney <laughs> yeah. company. But I think the thing that you really get into when you're starting to talk a lot about are those kind of, of issues that are now getting into with the sort of trademark versus copyright, where do we get with Steamboat Willie being Mickey Mouse in Steamboat Willie? Mm-hmm. And, and does that mean I can use the same black and white representation of him? But I can present it in an entirely new story, or is that the same? Or can Mickey I use Mouse? the current look of Mickey Mouse? Yeah, or do I have to wait for those copyrights to expire because it is a different visual depiction, even yep. setting apart the character's personality. And I think the real key thing with it is he's black and white, and I think that's one of the the key components of it is can I now present Mickey Mouse in black and white without an infringement of copyright? But I can't present him in color. When we when we say what does the character copyright start is the first question, but the second question is when what does is it, it end and <laughs> what is it? And you know we're now looking at it and saying okay, our problem with copyright is we don't know when the copyright starts, when it ends, or what it covers. Now we start looking at this as a law point and say, well, wait a minute, what's the law? I think we'll start getting answers in the next five years. I think uh, this is, this copyright is going to expire. Somebody's going to put the test case out there. Disney's going to litigate it. Yep. And within Mark, you know, within five six years, we're going to see the first lawsuit trying to enforce a trademark interest in Steamboat Willie, and we'll see yeah. where it goes. I think but, we also see enforcing copyright interest, quite frankly, though. Probably, probably they'll, they'll at least attempt to argue that the Mickey Mouse copyright has not yet run based on, say, Fantasia or some later publication. And I think yep. we'll get some clarity on this point. It's going to be really interesting to watch. And if, if we're still doing this podcast, we'll do one uh, yeah. on, on that one. Well, and I, th- I think the real value of this is as much as you can say sort of it's Disney has the problem being a corporate interest in doing this, Disney can afford to be that test case. Yeah. And that's a good thing. I mean, we will have extremely good lawyers, you know, with lots of research. Yeah. Disney can't win this battle. Nobody can. Yeah. No. You know, and, and but we'll, it's even if they don't win it, I don't think it matters. I think the, the key of for what we get into with it is it will be very, very thoroughly considered. Yes. And that's a good thing. It will go to the Supreme Court, most yeah. likely, unless they deny certiorari. Yeah. And and that's a good thing from this because we it's we have we'll have two you know litigants in conjunction with this who have the ability to actually decide this and yep. that's if nothing else that's the it good should thing. bring some certainty to this body of law yeah and that will help other people plan what to do with these properties going forward it will probably also influence the lobbying efforts that take place from say 1920 or 2024 on so we'll, <laughs> we'll see that too all right. Well, we're going to move on here. So our takeaways, uh, I don't think, Kirk, neither one of us would deny that Disney's had a profound influence on our, our copyright yep. laws. But it's not just them. It's others, too. People who are probably have a little more innocuous perception uh, in the public eye, like Rodgers and Hammerstein and, and Gershwin and people like that. And some of it we can also say, I think, is while it may be Disney, it may also be the era. And I think that's it an is. important thing It is. I think it's an important out. thing. That, that particular era was, was a crucial formative period of, of, of the nation. And, you know, and I'd argue that if, if that hadn't been the era, if it was instead the 1960s, then nobody would be caring about copyright extensions until that period expired. Nobody cared about stuff from the 1910s going into yeah. the public domain because who can name anything? You know? yeah, you've got to wonder if stuff's going to come out sort of if the next important period is going to be when things at post-World War II become yeah. important. That may be the next important period of sort of American history. You know, you're talking the, the 50s. Um, is that when we're going to become suddenly interested again? Yep. 
Uh, will there be any more extensions? I think probably not. I mean, I'd, I'd be willing to predict. We, we saw how well our predictions worked in conjunction with Star Wars. <laughs> but, you know, I predict that I don't think there's really going to be any more extensions. And part of the reason I don't think there's going to be more extensions is because the extension's already beyond the lifetime. As the sort of Duke Law professor that you quoted said, you know, we're already so far along. Yeah. I'm not sure we need to make it any and longer. I mean, there's no harmonization arguments to make unless we want to harmonize with Mexico. But that, you know, doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make so any sense, yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't see what the, what the cover is going to be for, for trying to do it again unless, unless Europe gets on board. And I don't think they're interested. So I think, uh, I think we're going to get answers soon. Okay, well, uh, we have mail. Here we go. We heard from somebody on ISCA, or I did, that uh, you may remember in a couple episodes ago, I mentioned the great Iowa treasure hunt, which had to do with uh, Charlotte was untalking about a sheetment. Uh, somebody else from Iowa checked the website, and the state owed them money. So <laughs> they let me know that they're getting like $12 from the state of <laughs> Iowa. It's really kind of awesome, actually. Yeah, so uh, no finder's fee. You're welcome. Uh, we also have a well-actually guy that corrected uh, several episodes ago. We were talking about the Cobalt Librarian in Hearthstone and how, the, how it works. Yep. Um, and uh, we we both thought it was uh, it wasn't working the way that the text was written, but but our well actually guy corrected me and said it's actually an animation ordering problem, and the card text is accurate yep. to describe the interaction. And when you look at it, yeah, he has. And correct, we checked; yeah. he's right. We're wrong. So there you go. Another well actually guy. This is way back from our. Um, our Star Wars Holiday Edition uh, Holiday Special uh, episode who, one, I think me or Kirk, one of us mentioned something about Fox channels not being widely available in the 80s. Yeah. He said that's true because they weren't available at all. Oh, Fox didn't come out until later. So <laughs> this is this is just what happens when you're when you're doing a podcast and you, you think of something and uh, you don't have time to fact check everything. So And someone said uh, did you follow Dennis Crouch? He did a story on science fiction law regarding minority report and predictive policing. Dennis is a patent professor uh, at Mizzou. Uh, University of Missouri. University of Columbia, Missouri. For those of you who are local. Uh, I've met him once or twice. Have you, you've met Dennis, haven't you? Oh, yeah, I met Dennis. Yeah, Dennis great is great. Uh, I, 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 I did see that. Uh, Kirk, you probably did too. We both subscribed to Dennis's uh, mailing yep. list. Um, it's, it's an interesting story. We'll have to look into that in more detail. And, uh, and talk about it. Um, and then the last one, someone asked us to do a Black Panther review. Uh, Kirk, go ahead. You, you've seen it more recently. <laughs> so, yeah, I, just, I mean, I saw it you know, what's a few weeks ago now um, at the time this podcast will release. I loved it. Um, yeah. I am not a big fan of superhero movies for the most part. Um, I've, th- the problem with this is I find a lot of them to be formulaic and I find a lot of I the agree. heroes to be kind of dull. Um, well, I think the the hero in Black Panther is a bit formulaic um, mm-hmm. as to what it is. The background is not. And I think that's the reason I really enjoyed the movie. It's It was a very sort of, you know, sort of well set up, mm-hmm. well arranged thing. Um, what I really liked about it, and, and I comment about this, and I'll make the prediction right now as to what it is. If the costumer for Black Panther does not win the Oscar, there is something <laughs> very, very wrong in the world. Um, the costuming in that is just brilliant. The set design is just brilliant. Um, and that's what makes it so cool as a movie is it's set in a world that I think – it, it's fant- it's fantastic, but it's set within a world which is also fantastic. We've had superhero movies, but we created this new world within it, um, which is very African, mm-hmm. which is the creation of the idea of, you know, what do, we, what do we have coming out of the Black Panther mythos and the idea of this sort of secret society, secret, you know, community basically that exists. And they did a great job of basically saying this is it in a very post you – know, it's a modern world, but it's even a beyond modern world. Because in many respects, as much as we say superheroes are set in modern world, they're really set in a beyond modern world. It, it, conceptually, the, the idea behind the story I, th- I found fascinating. We're going to take these, these you know, Central African cultures that, that yeah. by any modern standard are, are, remain somewhat primitive. Um, uh, they're, they've industrialized slowly, much like a lot of Asia has. And we're going to take those cultures and say, but what if? What if they industrialize? the way 
way that Europe did, for example, yeah. what would you get? And what would this culture look like? And it looks so different from European culture. Uh, it was just – I'm just just watching the movie. I didn't even care what happened. I was just watching the visuals. Yeah. It was just so interesting. I wish the I wish they'd slow down the pacing even more so I could just soak in the scenes yeah. and, and just look at it. It was a really neat-looking – Movie. That was my um, real take of it as well. Is it's so much to me with that movie was much more setting than characters. I mean, the characters are fascinating. I do sort of agree that I think that you know the, the two women quite frankly steal the show from Black <laughs> Panther. Um, but you know, I think that the, the characters are well set up. They're well laid out. But the setting is so cool. I also like the fact that it's when you have the the CIA agent who sort of comes into there. It's completely alien to him, and mm-hmm. it's alien to you, and they present it that way, where it's suddenly he comes up and he's like, wait a minute, you can't do that. I'm like, what do you mean we can't do that? Of course I, we can I, do I that. I love how all the characters were like slightly exasperated with him having to get caught up with where they are. Yes. <laughs> like, the, the, I mean, my favorite line of the thing you, you mentioned this earlier is, wait, you have hover bikes? Yeah, like, of course we do. <laughs> you know? uh, I think what I liked the best about it, I think, was most of the superhero movies have a structural problem. The origin story part is interesting, which is always the first third of the movie. And then you get the second third, which is the, the villain's origin and setting up the conflict and then you have the big dumb fight at the end yeah. and the big dumb fight to me is always the boring part where it's like okay I know we have the, the great CGI and the action scenes but I know how this ends the good guy is going to win the bad guy is going to lose it's just a matter of how we get from A to B and it's usually a lot of hard to follow frenetic action maybe I'm just getting too old for this and Black Panther had a little bit of that at the end with the, I thought, unnecessary fighting rhinoceros scene. And I liked stuff. the fighting rhinoceros. Well, it, was, it was fine, but the, the parts of the story I liked the best were the character development parts. Where yes. They were establishing the setting and establishing Wakanda and establishing the, the rights of succession and the, the vision they have when they, when, they, when they bury the characters and then he yeah. goes into like the spirit world and talks to his ancestors and um, just all of the sort of world building and culture building and uh, environment building aspects I thought were really interesting. And there's also not really an origin story. He already has the costume. We don't have yeah. to find out where it comes from. And we do find out, but it's not really a part yeah. of the story. He's already this person. We don't watch him become it. He already is. Yeah, he sort of becomes it formally. Yeah, but. I mean, there's that's all part of the political aspects. And and the conflict was not evil genius with a laser into the sky that's going to turn us all into lizards or something. Yeah. It was a political dispute within Wakanda about what to do with these resources and how best to use them. And like Michael B. Jordan's character, what was his name? Uh, Killmonger. Killmonger. He had a point, you know, like, like, look, we could be doing more. Now, he went too far with what he wanted to do, but I liked at the end, uh, uh, what's his name, T'Challa? Yeah. I don't know, is that right? Yeah. I think it's right. Uh, the, the king, uh, Black Panther. Um, you know, Killmonger wasn't wrong. And, and, and they, they came around to his point of view. They wanted to, to, to use their resources differently, but uh, they agreed that he was right. They needed to share what they had with the world yeah. and, and, and improve things. Or at least right so, to some respect. I, just, I liked that the story was smaller. It was more tightly focused. Uh, and it wasn't this, this big you know, epic where we had to save the city from being destroyed. Yep. It was more about saving a, a people from being destroyed. Yeah, and the one thing I, I also have to admit, and it's, we talked a little bit about this, but one of my favorite scenes actually in the movie, quite frankly, um, I actually really enjoyed the sort of succession battle and the idea yeah. of the king's fight each other and I liked the way they did it I thought it was really cool with the idea of sort of collapsing circle which to me mm-hmm. you know, felt very Roman I mean to be quite yeah. truthful I have no idea if there's any association with that that I should be making but that was one of the things that I had with I it. didn't put that together but yeah but the the you know the shield wall that's sort of what I was kept thinking of but I think one of the, the things that I really liked about it is you do that in the first one. You have this, this you know, combat where he fights the opposing king. And you very much have this thing at the end of the, you know, yield your people need you. You know, the idea that mm-hmm. this is a combat which has to take place. But in some sense, the outcome is a foregone conclusion. Then you have Killmonger showing up and entering this. And it ends, I think everybody's essentially horrified by how it ends. Mm-hmm. But part of the reason is, is you get the impression 
that nobody's ever died before. Yeah, they don't actually finish anybody off that way. Yeah, right? and you know, it's an important thing that that aspect be there, that there be the threat of this, but that it never really happens because there was a sort of recognition in the community that no, these people are necessary. That you know, you shouldn't just kill off an opposing king because they oppose your power. You can defeat them, and it's, there's nothing ignoble about the defeat. Even mm-hmm. it's that's acceptable. You tried, and simply that's the way it is. And I actually really like that. And I really like the way the actors portrayed it. I like the way it was done. The way it's done is this kind of, hey, wait, this is the the process. And the way I, I had it is it was sort of a, a process over substance. And I guess yeah. part of that was it appealed to me as the lawyer, where it was the, hey, they have this process in place, and suddenly this process is used by a party that they didn't expect in a mm-hmm. way they didn't expect. And it creates this enormous problem. And they have a debate internally, too. Like, well, this is the way that we do things, and he's the correct king according to our laws. Yeah. And so the soldiers, you know, they think they need to follow him even though they don't like it. Yeah. Which, which I, I would say it explored that concept more of, of the— Sort of like, like, what does it mean to be a legitimate governor or not? They're yeah. all they're all looking at it and saying, this is not right. This is not the direction for Wakanda. This is not the people that we are. Uh, this person's been shaped by you know a cultural experience of growing up as a minority in America, and so his view on what we should be doing is is a little yeah. different from how we view our own role. It, it, was, it was a really interesting cultural tension that that they they solve with a, a big dumb fight yeah. at the end. <laughs> well, and the other the other thing that I think they did really well with it is his, after he becomes the king, the ability to destroy the ability for there to be future kings, mm-hmm. and the idea that he can comes with absolute power. That's right, because he destroyed all the flowers. He destroys the flowers. And I think that that's, I I really enjoyed that tension. It's something that I don't think has ever really been explored in a superhero movie. The idea that says, should a superhero have the ability to destroy, the ability to make superheroes. Mm -hmm. Interesting enough, the only other one I can really talk about that I think touched on it as all is some of the Wolverine movies. Some of the X-Men movies, Deadpool actually touches on it a little bit of this idea of what does it mean to make superheroes. Um, And it's something I think the X-Men played around with a bit just because of the nature of the X-Men. But, it's one of those where I really liked that that portion of it. The idea that, you know, uh, somehow this has been damaged, but it's been damaged entirely by the rules. And again, that kind of appealed to the lawyer in me yep. of this is the the concern with black letter law. This was following black letter law, and suddenly it creates all these problems. Well, overall, I liked it. I found it refreshing. I found it to be a, a different a different kind of, of comic book hero movie. And uh, I, I agree with a lot of the reviews that said this is this is a movie we needed to have for on so many levels, both like a social level as well as a narrative level. Where I'm just I'm tired of the same yeah. superhero movies over and over and over. And this was just different in so many ways and, and, and all good ways. I'm really curious what his character is going to be like in Infinity War. Yeah, me too. Okay, so we went over two minutes there, but that was a, that was a great film, fun to talk about. Okay, so there's the music, and it is time to go. If you have questions, comments, topic ideas, or just want to hear your name read, you can send your thoughts to us on Twitter at LGGpod or email us at lggpodcast at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on our Facebook page, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, and you will find us there. You can subscribe to this podcast. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please give us a review. We appreciate that. It helps other people find us. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and Kirk is at KirkDMN. Uh, next time, we're going to do the third part of our character copyright series, where we're going to go through a, a series of, of sort of specific cases. And, and now that we've laid the groundwork for this, kind of talk through how courts have actually decided these things, which will give you probably the best guidance you can get on, on where these lines are drawn. So uh, that's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. 
This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 